Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Selective Hearing. I'm your host, Julie DeMar, and this week I am here with two very special guests. I am here with a mother-daughter duo, and that is something that I have never done before and I've never seen. So I am so excited to have this conversation, and I'm even more excited for all of you to hear what we're going to discuss today. So today with me, I have Miss Amaranthia and Miss Claire and we are going to get into a lot of different things about intergenerational trauma, a lot of tools, skills, resources, and experience. Hi, ladies. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. Um, I'm Amaranthia and Claire. My mom, Claire. And because a lot of our work is around disability accessibility, I'll do um, a quick self-ID, which is for people who are um, blind or they have vision issues. So yes, I'm Amaranthia. I'm 20, about to turn 24. I am a young Black woman with long Black locks and I have like silver um, beads or, or and metal beads. Locks are kind of off to the side, my left side. I'm wearing, a, I would say they're like white kind of round mm -hmm. rimmed glasses, black sweater with some white stripes and a black denim jacket with some orange accent. Hi, I'm Claire. I am 60 year old female. She, her are my pronouns. And I um, I have a gray fade, um, wearing red, large frame glasses with gold chain, very colorful um, blazer. It has beautiful colors of, uh, I would say, uh, chartreuse a little bit black and um chartreuse th um thread work around the lapels and it's black and i have a black on the shirt and some necklaces and behind me is a white wall with some Jap japanese um prints and we have we're sitting on a colorful couch with a kente cloth and other colorful blankets and cushions nice to I be here it. i'm so glad that you guys are here I love it too. It's all when their screen popped in, everyone, it was so like big, bright and vibrant. It sent like, it sent the sunshine to Michigan because I'm in Michigan and it's a gloomy day. So I'm so glad like when, she, when your mom like first popped in, I was like, oh my gosh, you look so beautiful. And look at that jacket. <laughs> Thank you so much. Like, oh, it, it just added to the, it added some more sunshine to my day. So that is the goal for today is to add some more sunshine to your day, whether you're on the, on the treadmill at the gym right now or driving into work, or if you're just at home listening to us, like I said, in my introduction, this is a conversation that you absolutely do not want to miss. So intergenerational trauma or generational trauma, or like um, I, we've referred on this show, uh, trauma cycle breakers, you know, like there's so many different terms out there but that is what i want to um discuss today and the beauty about this is like we're talking i'm here i'm going to be 40 in a couple of weeks you're 24 um next week 20, 25 next week and then her mother is 60 i've never seen a mother and a daughter have this conversation she's um, 24 next week 24. yeah 24 next week okay don't let me make you older than you are <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen this before and I think it's beautiful and I think it gives physical representation to the mental components that surround this topic where you can have a conversation with two 
generations, especially a mother and daughter, and offer like real life insight as to what it looks like to heal these trauma cycles. So can you guys, from your perspective and your experience as mother and daughter and what you've been doing on your healing journey, explain intergenerational trauma to the audience and kind of how you feel it gets passed down from generation to generation? Well, I guess I'd start with me because that's where it begins. I was born in Barbados. I'm 60 years old, as I said earlier. And so I was born into a domestic violent family. That was my base. And as life went on and I made a lot of decisions to get to here, I always wanted to know why this happened to me. Why this happened to me? Why me? There's a book that Oprah wrote. I think it was, it's called What Happened to You? I just discovered it and it's talking about this intergenerational trauma and about how we can heal and live out our lives by acknowledging it and stuff like that. I always want to know why this happened to me and basically as time went on and I lived my life, my first memory was when I was four and I remembered living at a relative and waking up in the dark and hearing my mother being beaten outside in the street by my dad. And how we got to that house was he kicked us out of our home and we had to live with relatives. This is something that as I grew that went on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, as a four year old, I could hear my mom screaming outside and I felt a lot of fear. But at the same time in the darkened room with this candle, I had, it was a candle that lit up the room and there were shadows. And I can remember cursing like there was this light that was there. I remember how I felt comforted. Mm -hmm. And I tell you this story to tell you that that light is what carried me through all the way to here. Always having that light at my center. Sometimes it was like lesser and sometimes it was more. But the intergenerational trauma I discovered through entering college, I realized that it was not this thing that my father visited upon us. As I um, did the research in college and stuff, I realized it wasn't just him. That this had come through generations and generations and generations. And he was just the person that was carrying out this behavior because he didn't know any better. And that was by accessing that and doing my research and everything in college, I came to a place of forgiveness about him and understanding. And because I came to that, when Amaranthia was born, I was still, it's an ongoing thing when you start to peel it back. It's not something that you, it just happens, you know, and you just get better. It's an ongoing process. And so when Amaranthia was born, it was still feeding into my motherhood of how I was raising her. But I kept asking the question, why me and how can I get better? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of use art and writing and everything to access and to understand what was happening to me. And I passed it on to her all the way to now. And so I do a lot of work through my art um, to heal. For you, what was that experience like being a daughter growing with a mom who was growing and learning and responding to and reacting to and battling through her triggers? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. I think my mom and I have always had a very close relationship as I got older and, you know, depending on my age, like you kind of started telling me your story, mm -hmm. you know, in an age appropriate way. And then as I got older and I started going through puberty, then we had more discussions about it and it helped me have an understanding of her anxiety and symptoms of PTSD that we didn't really know about. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've always been so close. We've always had open conversations. And so 
we've always had a very loving, close relationship. I think with the art, seeing how art helped heal my mom, and when I started experiencing bullying and um, racism, because we live in a, a majority white community. At one point, we lived in Japan for two years, and we lived there from ages four to six. I think that was 2004 to 2006. We came back to the U.S. We originally were based in like um, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. We came back to Connecticut and then the bullying happened. And so my mom was realizing that I use art to help me cope. And so she would, we'd have this back and forth of like, wow, this is really helping you. And so I would always say like art was my only friend because the bullying was so harsh. And so I was able to go to her and always have this conversation. And I realized that this issue of um, intergenerational trauma, the anxiety mm -hmm. and the panic attacks and stuff that we were having, but I didn't know until several years later, both of us, mm -hmm. that it was panic disorder and complex PTSD that were causing these things. And so... I realized that that was passed on just genetically because we have the same diagnosis of complex PTSD, panic disorder, and also agoraphobia, which is just from the traumas that we've had, you know, you growing up, mm -hmm. domestic violence, me from the bullying. And so we would get into fights like any other mother, daughter. Uh, my mom has talked about on other podcasts how like at 15, mm -hmm. I would see her um, do a lot of self-sabotage. And it would really make me angry because I'd be like, you're so talented. You've done all this work to address these issues through art and you keep sabotaging yourself. And I also realized that you were also working through this thing of realizing that because of the trauma with your father there was the issue of feeling like oh i have to have this patri patriarchal kind of mm -hmm. viewpoint like oh a man, has, a man has to be in charge of yeah. everything and so you were trying to figure out where your place in the world but you were still like thinking oh well a man has to do all those things for me really i, mm -hmm. I can't really do this myself yeah and so we would get into fights about that a lot and i would be like no you're doing a lot of nonsense i'm tired <laughs> of it stop the bs <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so we would have these fights and then we'd do the silent treatment and, and you would come back and be like you know what you're right emma you're right. I messed up. We need to work through this. We need to keep having these conversations. And so it just kept happening like that. Mm -hmm. Once we started talking more about mental health and realizing, oh, we have the same symptoms, there's something going on. Um, we started going to therapy together and separately, which was really great because we were able to kind of list our symptoms together and realizing, oh, it's coming yeah. from your, not only your past, but then my the bullying that was happening. And we realized that the bullying that was happening to me was deeply affecting you because the parents were also bullied you <laughs> yeah and so and we then were... seeing you being bullied yes and then faith. exactly so there was all this racial trauma mixed in and so we were able to uh, do a lot of self-advocacy when a therapist didn't work out we'd go to the next person and so we kept doing that but i feel like all of it was um when we couldn't find the right people we just kept creating mm -hmm. i just kept making my art telling my story through my art just talking about racial trauma both of us talking about the effects of slavery on, on, on Black people and how that's caused this intergenerational trauma. So I think that our relationship, we've had the ups and downs, but we're so close because we're able to handle calling each other out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we'll sit with it and we'll have those discussions and we'll figure it out. And it's caused us to have a really powerful bond. Yes. Um, in relationship. I'm just really proud of where we are now. I feel like yep. we've the, we're the closest we've ever, we've always been close, but it's the closest we've ever been. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are probably going to hear me say, I love that this entire <laughs> episode. 
<laughs> like, and, and I'll have a reason for every time I say it, but like this, you said some things that I like want to circle back to okay. that I saw like a few weeks ago. It was like a post that say like, if you want to break a generational curse, allow your children the opportunity and the space to communicate with you when you aren't right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I just like listening to you, I didn't even have to ask, well, what's a curse that you feel like you've broken, you know, in your family because you guys have open, healthy communication. And you recognize that even if, you know, you're saying something that I don't like, or I don't want to hear right now, it doesn't mean that you're wrong. You're being a bad kid or you're disrespectful or, you know, like all those different things that a lot of people experience, stay in a child's place. No, do as I say, not as I, you know, do, you know, all those different things that are kind of passed down from generation to generation and you experiencing like you lose your voice like what it sounds like to me is that you guys encouraged each other and even you encouraging your mom like listen to your voice mom like why are you quiet in that voice why are you stepping away from that it's powerful it's beautiful like what are you doing that's amazing that's like something that is really beautiful to see and to hear I want to like kind of go into like how things manifest. I know you spoke that PTSD and anxiety manifested in between both of you as a result of intergenerational trauma. So like, what are some things from your opinion do you think people may not be aware of as far as these things manifesting in their life? Well, first thing I could only speak from my lived experience. The, the thing that I know in my life is what I saw as I got older. I found this practice called Buddhism. After I found that practice that I started to begin to make sense of things, it allowed me to get some distance and it be, allowed me to go deeper. And I would see the behaviors like looking for the same type of person. I kept looking for my dad mm -hmm. in all the relationships I had. I always kept looking for what I didn't find in my dad. And so I kept repeating this over and over and over and over. And then in friendships, I could never really have very strong friendships with women. I always had a pretty close relationship with my mom, but she was kind of distant because she didn't know what was going on with her either. Right. Mm -hmm. So I never really understood what it meant to have a friend because I was always operating from a place of desperation. That's the other thing. Always operating from a place of desperation. And so when you operate from a place of desperation, that informs everything. You are totally separated from who you are. This feeling of a distance from myself. Health issues started after Amarantia was born. So the health issues started coming out. I was also very, very fit when I was younger. The thing that I noticed too was um, very fixated on how I looked. The physical, physical things were very important for me because I didn't have a sense of place. So I didn't have a home. So always feeling that I had to always make sure that I had physical stuff right? And always um, investing in my body, making sure I exercised till I had the perfect toned body. All these little things, but they didn't add up to anything till much later, as I look back and I learn more about it. I was doing all these things because I felt I didn't have a sense of place. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I came from. I ran from Barbados and came over to the U.S. to run away from what I saw as the trauma and the violence in my life that had caused so many problems there. But then what? Karma, which I learned practicing, learned about in Buddhism, 
followed me wherever I went. So all those problems that I had from that instability and that lack of self-love and everything followed me wherever I went, followed me into relationships. So what the most important thing I realized is the common denominator. The common denominator in every single thing was me. The common denominator was that I was carrying the chaos wherever I went. So obviously the chaos would manifest itself in every situation. So there was always chaos. And so pretty much that was it. And then um, it took me, took a long, long time for me to understand that. And it was therapy and the practice of Buddhism. It's a life philosophy. I don't look at it as a religion. It's just a guide for me of how to live my life every day. And it is through that lens that I began to pull things together and, make, and began to make my life make sense. You just gave like the perfect segue into acknowledging and understanding the importance of acknowledging and understanding yourself and you know what all of this is so you can even start to heal and you know in these cycles so for both of you I'll start with Claire and then I'll circle back to Amaranthia what was that pivotal moment for each of you where you started understanding yourself and you started acknowledging the things in you that you wanted to heal so that you can reach that place of wholeness man there were so many pivotal moments but I would say the biggest, the main thing for me is finding Buddhism. I found Buddhism when I was about 29 in my early 30s or late 20s in the middle of a subway in New York City. A couple of weeks or so before that, I had been just living a life that was so empty and I felt so lost because at that time I had stayed over my visa and I was living as an invisible person in New York City. I felt like there was no hope. I tried to commit suicide. I was living in a roommate house and I said, what's the point? I have nowhere to go back to. This sucks. I can't go forward. I can't fix. I'm not fixing this. So I took some pills and some alcohol and I said, that's it. I'm gone. But I woke up next day and outside of my door there was all this chaos and it was this guy that was being arrested by the FBI because my neighbor had been dealing drugs and I was like man I came back to this again well I gotta keep going it's telling me I gotta keep going so I went got out and I went to the subway and I um I was in the city in the village and this person, I was standing on the subway and this person came up and said to me, do you know the power of Namiho Renge Kyo? And he was a, just a, a strange looking guy. And I was like, in New York, all kinds of things happen. So I was like, what the heck are you saying? And he was like, Namiho Renge Kyo. And do you know what that, what the power of that? And I said, no. And he said, I just told you about the, the chant that could change your life. So he said, say it. And I said, okay, I got nothing to lose. So I said, Namiho Renge Kyo. And immediately I felt like this feeling of like lightning, feeling of like this energy went like through my body from head to toe. And I, I was like shaking like this. And I said, what did you do? And he said, I just gave it to you. And I said, wow, that is amazing. And it was from that moment, my life changed. And that was the beginning of this whole process process of self-actualization that's what I call it and this life philosophy in my life that helped me to peel back begin to pull back peel back the onion of my life physically mentally emotionally psychologically spiritually and it brought me to this place and that so that was the pivotal moment and that is a philosophy that I've passed on to my daughter as well yeah I've had so many pivotal moments too I think Buddhism because I was born into it and knowing my mom's story it always encouraged me and 
I feel like there's like three key moments I'll try to go kind of summarize. When the bullying got really bad, at this point we were in New Hampshire, we've been here like what, 15, 16 years? So yeah, we moved, once we came back from Japan, we were in Connecticut and then we moved here. I think that was like 2008, we moved here and the bullying kept getting worse. And I always confided in my mom and I just kept creating art. And my art teacher, he saw my work. My mom told him my story about what happened, like how we lived in Japan, how that was influencing my work. And I've had like reverse culture shock and I was dealing with all this bullying and he just thought my work was really powerful. I think I was 11. So I think this was fifth grade. And he took my work and turned it into this art show. We'd have this weekly meeting every Friday. It was called town meeting and all the teachers and kids and some parents would come in and we would gather and it was like an assembly. Um, and they would show stuff on the screen or there would be performances or whatever. Um, talk about whatever's going to be happening for the next week. They showed this slideshow of us, all my work. And all these kids, they were saying, ooh, and ah, and they were just so like enamored by it. And I was shocked because no one really would talk to me. And there was a few kids that knew me, but they were constantly trying to like steal my designs and characters and stuff because I was really into comics and manga and character design. And so I didn't have real friends but all of a sudden these people kept talking to me and I was like oh I need to do art shows like I need to keep doing this this is very healing at age eight I had like a moment where I was like I need to be an artist because it, it just clicked for me after seeing like the sunflower field I knew like oh this is what I'm supposed to do with my life a couple years before but when that happened that gave me the answer like oh I need to do art shows because this is not only healing for me but it's healing for the audience telling my story, encouraging people to tell their story. And then when I got into middle school, the bullying got worse. I did this anti-bullying project called um, Do You Know Who I Am? And that project was telling my story because I just got fed up. I got tired. I wasn't a kid that really stood up for myself. I was very shy. But once I went to middle school, I, I was like, I'm not taking this anymore. And I'll just call people out left and right. Um, I was pretty radical. Like I would have this book that said all of the black kids would sit at one table. So it was like everyone was kind of segregating mm -hmm. themselves and no one would sit with me. I would always sit by myself because the black kids who were around were immigrants. And so they had language barriers. I couldn't really sit with them. And so I had no one to really talk to that got me and again I was having issues with friends who were like not true friends and they were letting the bullying happen and so I would take this book that said why are all the black kids sitting at the, table, exactly. the same table or something and, yeah and the teachers would be like oh, it would be scared to talk to me <laughs> because I just got tired but I took this story and I did that kind of presentation style again and I just told my story with my art and I told the kids and the teachers like we need to have kids tell their story whether it's art or sports or whatever just to let them say this is who I am so people know hey I'm a human too I have passions I have flaws whatever but that doesn't mean like you should bully each other like get to actually know each other and so it was doing really well and we were supposed to go and tour to different schools and it premiered at a school that opened right next to the middle school and so it was doing well and then because we kept addressing like all the discrimination that was happening the teachers got really uncomfortable the principal was like we can't do this anymore he just shut it down yeah the eighth grade teachers the eighth grade teachers who were handling the students mm -hmm. who were doing the worst bullying mm -hmm. out of all the kids so they didn't want to deal with it because they knew like oh their kids are the problem and they didn't want to deal with it so that caused the spiral because i really put myself out there 
and suddenly all these kids want to talk to me the teachers want to talk to me a few teachers have come up to me like you know this really resonates with me because my kid is being bullied every day and I just wanted to tell you, like, I really appreciate this. And then when that happened, it just shut everything down. My own teachers wouldn't speak to me. And so I was just became like isolated. Like I was like this pariah for addressing like, hey, there's kids that are experiencing ableism, racism, misogyny and whatever. And it needs to be talked about. And so ultimately I had to become homeschooled online. And I started getting these panic attacks constantly to the point where the last day of last week of school, I couldn't even finish the last week of school. I had to go finish my test in the in the vice principal's office, who was like the only person on my side. And I had to just do everything in there because I just couldn't get back into the classroom without panicking. And so I realized that was like the time I had, I realized I had complex PTSD because the trauma, complex PTSD versus PTSD is like complex PTSD is ongoing trauma, where PTSD, I believe it's just one trauma that's happened. You so it just triggered all the time. Yeah. So it's just constant new traumas that were happening. It took me until I was like 17 or 18. I had to keep, keep advocating because at this time when all this happened, I was 13. So it was until I was 17 or 18. I had to keep advocating over and over, trying to find the right doctors, trying to find the right therapist because people didn't want to acknowledge that what was happening to me was based in race. I had a doctor who, ab who did advocate for me and she made the school, make sure the school paid us like 500 so I can go and get a computer and go through this virtual charter school. But once I turned 17 and I found I a therapist. More, I think it was like a thousand. It's more than No, that. no, it was only 500. Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember That's the memory. Than I remember the lecture got Because <laughs> we got really cheap. I wanted more money. <laughs> it, was just, it was just to get a cheap computer. Yeah. Oh my. I, once I got my diagnosis, I got diagnosed with GAD, generalized anxiety disorder. And I felt like that wasn't quite it, but I, I felt like I have PTSD, but no one would like listen to me except this the one doctor that I had. So I just kept advocating. I was like, I'm just going to tell my story for my art. I'm like, I'm just going to deliberately talk about mental health and stuff. And so I just kept doing that. A few years back, I went and transformed that Blante Bling project, turned to this thing called I'm Proud of Who I Am. And I told my story by going to these different libraries, doing these little galleries, talking about my story and, and encouraging other kids. And that was really healing. But once I got that diagnosis, I realized I need to do some self-advocacy. And then I realized, oh, I'm disabled because I didn't understand that I was disabled invisibly. And it was something that took me a long long time to come to terms with. But once I realized that, and I realized I had some form of PTSD, and that, that was, was a pivotal. Thing, yeah, That's th a pivotal that moment. was another pivotal moment, because mm -hmm. I realized I'm disabled by this. I'm not able to function socially sometimes because of this. I get physically ill because of it. And once I realized that, I just went full on, like, I need to be doing my art with this activist mm -hmm. work, talking about disability, talking about accessibility, talking about the effects of like ongoing trauma mm -hmm. on people and so that's kind of when we really came together yes which I we've think. done multiple times but yeah. we were like oh it's deeper than that exactly yeah you know? so yeah and then other thing i wanted to tell you about that was why buddhism was so pivotal is because of buddhism that i went back i left you remember I said I had overstayed my visa? I went and I talked to elders about what I was going through in, in the Buddhist sect. I went and I talked to them and they said, you can't go any further until you fix that situation. You have to leave. You have to leave this country and go back to where you started. That's the only way you can move your life forward. And I was like, huh, how am I going to do that? I might never be able to get back. And they said, well, 
that's the part of practicing Buddhism. If you believe in, if you want to see if this works, go back and see whatever comes out, that is your answer. And so I went back and it, I went and faced immigration in Barbados and com confronted the situation. And I got a lot of help from people who learned my story here and back in Barbados. And I went back and I kept chanting for like 90 days. I got everything straightened out and I met people in the Barbados government and stuff who helped me. And I turned it around when I came back with a student visa, started my life over again. And that was when I realized that this Buddhism was the most important thing in my life. And I also learned that it was the same chant that Tina Turner used to get her out of her domestic violence situation. And when I saw that, I was like, wow. And as I'm talking to you, I can feel the chills. And I was like, wow, if Tina Turner did that and she's so known around the world, what about little tiny me? I can do this. So yeah. that's why it was so pivotal. It made me change everything and confront the darkest parts of my life. I think um, the chant, <laughs> if, if mm -hmm. you guys see the movie, <laughs> yes, yeah, the, the chant, I yeah. think the movie made the chant, um, it brought a lot of attention to it and made it like famous because yeah. that movie, especially in, in Black American culture, it's like, oh gosh, it's like a staple. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. We know all the words, we know all the scenes, like, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, like fun fact for my listeners, uh, Tina Turner actually went to school, she was younger, she went to school with my grandmother, though. They're from oh. the same area in Tennessee. And she actually graduated with my grandma's youngest twin sisters. And I used to love asking my grandma about Tina Turner. And she used to always say she just had some skinny legs. Her legs were skinny. <laughs> she would always talk about her legs being so small. And I was like, well, by the time she started performing, them legs were strong and big. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Tina we saw had legs. but Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Um, so that wants me, that brings me into your art and your, your determination and your will to just keep, you know, pushing on and, you know, healing and growing. Then this thing was born. So share with the audience about Sister Creatives Rising and what is that and how did it all get started? So, yeah, it got started from my journey and yes. trying to find my whole thing and getting that visa coming back to the U.S. After after I got that visa and I came back while I was um, I had overstayed that visa, I still wanted to get my education straightened out. So I went and I did my GED while I still was overstayed that visa before I went back to Barbados. I got my GED, my SAT. So when I came back, I was ready to go. So I went straight into college and I got um, scholarships and, um, and awards because I started to tell this story about this journey. And that journey and that story took me to Mount Holyoke College where I got scholarship as a Francis Perkins scholar. And then as under that scholarship, I was be I, I really sat down and began to do the work. This was my thesis project. It was called Shadows of Voodoo, Bridging Gaps to the Past, the Present. And this is where this little book is where I put it, where it all started. And that was my research project. I, that took me to Senegal, West Africa, to the door of no return, where I stood, where those slaves had been shipped off and they never came back. And it was there that I was like, I redetermined that I need to figure out what this intergenerational trauma was. And that's where it began. And then I wrote a play about my journey from true domestic violence called Shadows of Voodoo. That is where 
I began to really tie everything together. And when Amaranthia was born, I met my husband and I and I got married. And that's why I'm, I now have my green card. I live here in the U.S. Amaranthia was born. And that's when I started to realize the importance of art. I began to make those connections of how this art was helping me to heal. So when she was born, she was very sick. I continued writing and continued doing the art. And she told you about how she came into it. And so we came together, as she told you, on the Sister Creatives Rising. Then in 2021, we realized the work that she had done in school, the work that I had done in college. Somehow we found an intersection and we came together. We started doing this work. So she'll tell you more about that. Yeah. So you were saying, yeah, Sister Creatives Rising is a, like a combination of the work my mom did with like her playwriting and directing and using art to heal and raise awareness about social issues. And then what I was doing with the moving, the, the galleries, um, moving art shows and things like that. We basically combined it because mm -hmm. um, when the pandemic happened, um, I wasn't able to go to school. I got into SCAD. Um, I couldn't go because of health issues and money issues too. It was just too expensive. And then when the pandemic hit, I lost all these opportunities where I was going to be networking, going into the galleries. And I decided, okay, I'm just going to do virtual shows. I'm just going to figure this out. And I connected with these creative activists in Massachusetts. And I just kept creating these virtual shows. We did this one with this uh, organization called The Painted Brain in LA, and they do um, activist work around mental health. And that's where we started learning about disability accessibility and ASL and captioning and things like that. And we were like, I think before that, we were building Art in Mind. Mm -hmm. And Art in Mind is this uh, virtual art show that's centered on disability accessibility. And we showcase marginalized artists that are, aren't really known, but they're using their art to heal. And they're not the type of artists you would get into a gallery, typically. Marginalized. Yeah. Okay. So we did that and we fundraised for something called um, Brain Arts, which is an organization in Boston. Fundraised $751 for them. And um, they help marginalized artists in the Boston community. And so we did that and we we're like, hmm. We need to keep going with it. This did really well. And it's all virtual. It was completely virtual. And so we did this business course, mm -hmm. my mom and I, and that was, so that was 2021. Mm -hmm. And that's where we developed Sister Creatives Rising, where we decided that our mission was to help marginalized women, marginalized genders, gain accessibility and visibility in the arts to facilitate their personal healing. And so again, it's total, total virtual platform. We have an emphasis on disabled artists like us, especially those who are visibly disabled, who are immunocompromised. And um, homebound. And homebound. And then we were about to launch it last March. And then my mom got sick. She started losing her mobility mm -hmm. the day after we launched our site. Yeah. And then she was hospitalized a week later. And then it turned out she had... Cancer on my spine. Yeah, a massive tumor on her spine. And she had um, eventually got diagnosed with lymphoma with a 50% chance of paralysis. And when she got surgery, which was like 24, 24 hours later after the um, you were in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. the, last year, yeah. It was all last year. And then you were suddenly in the 1% to walk again because after surgery, she started moving her legs. Mm -hmm. We started doing for seven months, going through all this treatment, chemo, radiation, physical Learning therapy. to walk again. Yeah. Okay. Couldn't move my hands. Couldn't, nothing. Neuropathy. Neuropathy. It's like a toddler. Hospitalizations back and forth. Yeah. It was horrifying, but she was healing at such a fast rate. Like people couldn't believe it. They're like, this doesn't make sense. This is a miracle. And we realized like, oh, the universe brought her back to 
tell the story and do this mission. So that mm -hmm. gave us this feel for Sissa Creatives to come back mm -hmm. when she went into remission, which was October 17th last year. And my birthday is October 19th. So that was like early birthday gift. And we decided, you know what, let's relaunch Sista's. Let's go. We relaunched it in January this year. Yeah. And we decided to work on the next art in mind and really just revamp everything. We pulled together a team, some people from the last show and some new international people. International and... Yeah, national and international, a very diverse, a lot of disabled artists. And then we got Brain Arts to sponsor us. We got Dancing Queerly, Boston, which is another organization based with a focus on dance and accessibility and um, queer artists. And we this came together and did this art in mind. We just did it October 5th. Last week. Week. The show. And after 11 months of pulling it together, and we raised $1,400. Um, 458 from marginalized creatives to yeah. give out $200 grants. Yeah, the goal was 1000 and we reached 1458 yeah. So now we could do seven grants. And the whole idea for this year, because each art in mind does like a um, documentary. So we showcase these artists through a documentary that's supposed to be disability accessible. And this year we took five artists, paid them 200 each, got them to tell their story through their art. And we had like stop motion animation and, and musicians and painters and self-taught artists. Just all virtual. All virtual, just telling this their individual stories in like a half hour documentary. And without, in the middle of all that, we decided let's do a documentary about my mom. And so I my put journey. that together with her story using spoken word and performance art and um, pulling from stuff that she did when she did her her play, mm -hmm. like some um, Caribbean masks that she made. Sculpture. Um, yeah. Just talking about intergenerational trauma, talking about domestic violence and how like all this tied into her cancer journey and how she became this 1% to walk again. Yeah. And we were just in awe of how like, it did really well. We yes. had like 45 attendees. We had people donating and coming in. Like people just kept like coming in mm -hmm. and getting more tickets in the middle of the event. We're like, wait, we're in the middle of the event yeah. going on. And we had our speakers. We had therapist speakers talking about intergenerational talk mm -hmm. trauma, talking about disability, accessibility, COVID. And it was just so healing. Yeah. And I just now primed us for pulling together sisters into like a business instead of a grassroots project. And it's helping us network and meet other creatives who are just as passionate about this. So yeah, it's a long journey. We're so excited to keep doing more. I yeah. think yeah. Yeah. we're planning to go more into workshops and stuff here and do art in mind in 2025 again. But yeah. like, it's everything that we've just talked about. Yes, yeah. it came together. Finally came together one. to tell the story. And it's, we yeah. have it at the end. We'll give you those links to the, you can see those documentaries and stuff. But it just came together and no one would believe that I could not walk pretty much all last year. And now I'm walking again with a cane and the doctors can't understand how I did this because I it was on my spine. Yeah. And I could not do, I wore a, a brace that I could not look left, right. I could only look this way. Forward. Forward. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was a metaphor for my life because guess what? I believe as from a Buddhist perspective that that cancer was a manifestation of all the trauma that landed on my back that I never wanted to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so the universe said, you know what? You're going to stop right here, right now because those feet that you always depended on, upon to run from here to there from Barbados to take you everywhere, I'm going to take those feet away from you and you're going to stand still 
And if you understand this lesson, then you will walk again. I understood that at a deep level. So I sat and I listened. I laid in bed and I listened because I couldn't do anything else. I was in and out of the hospital. And I listened and I understood that this was the moment in my life that I had to decide to make that one big change. Okay, I understood the whole thing about intergenerational trauma and what happened to me. But what was I going to do with about it? About it? How was I going to be in the world from now on? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I decided to activate that light again that I told you way, way back in the beginning of our conversation, that candlelight. I activated that light. And now my personal mission is to help women, marginalized women, activate their light in the middle of their chaos by recognizing the causes and effects of intergenerational trauma. And that was my gift from cancer. Mm -hmm. That was my gift. And so that's what we are doing together in the world. We have our mission together with Sister Creatives. And I have this personal mission to go out and do that, to help other marginalized women like myself activate their light. I don't even know how to follow up with that. (laughs) Like the whole time you were talking, like I was just like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, like everything you said, just like, it's so true. Just all the things that we stuff away, run away mm-hmm. from, hide, how that will, it will manifest in our bodies and it will yeah. show up again as something else if we keep avoiding it. Exactly. And and I I use Oprah Winfrey a lot because she, she speaks to my heart so much, just like Tina did. But Oprah Winfrey, she, sa- she says... She has this quote that she always says. She says, listen to when life whispers to you. Life is always whispering to you. Or speaking to you. Or speaking to you. There there are these whispers and you need to listen to those whispers. And I remember she gave in that she gave. I listened to her on a compilation of her speeches. And she gave this speech where she was talking about when she was doing her show. She met this man who had been in a plane crash. And he was not supposed to survive. He said that when he was running out of the plane as it was burning and he looked back and he said it was like Dante's Inferno when he looked back. But what he saw was all these people burning. Mm -hmm. And as those people burned in their seats, he saw this. He lived to tell this story. As he saw these people burning, he saw these lights were coming out from the tops of their heads. He was not a a spiritual person. Mm -hmm. But he was like, what? the heck was that he saw and each person had some lights were brighter than others so when he he was at on Oprah, Oprah show and she he was talking about it and he said I am not a very spiritual person but when I saw those lights um emitting from those heads as those people died and they got out of there I decided that I was going to come back and I wanted the thing that I want to do in my life it's to make sure that when I leave, my light would be bright. And I was like, when she said that, when she told that story, I said, exactly. Mm-hmm. After cancer, that's my intention in the world. I want that when I leave this world, whatever light comes out at the top of my head, that it will be brilliant. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, Georgia O'Keefe has a quote. She says, it's not about where, where you come from. It's what you've done with where you've been. And that's important. Mm-hmm. And so that's why how I live my life now. And I feel like that's why all of our missions are in alignment. And we came together in a time that we came together to help, you know, put these things out there. So people who 
need help can know they're not alone and they have these resources and they have these other friends in the world that are reaching out to them and saying, here, take my hand. You don't have to do it by yourself. I always feel like people who end up doing things for by themselves for an extended period of time, that is because I, I feel like I was doing things for myself for a long time. And I just feel like that was kind of a part of the journey so that I can be strong enough to put my hand out and say, hey, you don't have to be alone. I got you, you know? Mm -hmm. So you two have been, I can keep you here all day. <laughs> <laughs> I loved you from the pre-interview. Oh my gosh. Like everything just came together so beautifully. And I like want to thank you again before I ask you the big show question, because this conversation, like I learned so much from the two of you. And one thing that I hope to with people listening to you and listening to your story and people who will see you show up on my social media and reels are that this is a mother and a daughter, everybody. Like we can heal together. Mm -hmm. Mothers and daughters, mothers and sons, fathers and sons, parents out there. You don't have to step away from your children because of what you're going through. Like as long as you are still here, it's not too late for you guys to come together. You guys actually give me a lot of hope. Yeah, well, inspire me and give me a lot of hope in my own situation with my mom because I know everything from her is not. It was given to her and she doesn't know any better. And I, you guys actually give me a lot of hope. Well, Thank the you. more the thing that is important for me to say is this: I was estranged from my family, you know, because of what happened. My mom is dead. My father is dead. My brother is dead. I'm the only one that's left from that nuclear family that was violent. And I'm the only one that made that transition. They went to their graves still in that, in that space of not knowing who they were. But thankfully I am here and I can carry on with my daughter. And so there are times when you might have to be estranged. Believe me, sometimes you might have to be estranged when you come from a place like that and parents sometimes don't understand. Sometimes when you have to take the different path, a different path to go after your light, your family might not understand and you might have to walk away. And that is the hardest thing to do, even when you come from a violent family, because it's family, it's all you know. In the end, you have to go after your light, mm -hmm. no matter what. And if you're looking for, you're trying to activate your light and you're trying to find who you are so you can be the best you are in this world, I feel the highest thing that you can do in this life to be better and to find your purpose so that you can help other people because there's so many people out there who need it. And my action call is get ahead of life before life gets ahead of you, you know? And so it's very important. 100% it is. We all have a purpose. We all have a purpose, but are we, and we also all have free will. So are we going to move in our purpose or are we going to move towards that other stuff? And that's what it, it boils down to. And I'm all for walking in my purpose. Like, yeah, that's right. A hundred percent. So ladies, the big show question is <laughs> what does selective hearing mean to you? You want me? Yeah. You go uh, selective hearing. Well, I've been a lot of around a lot of people <laughs> who have, who've had um, selective hearing. That's, the reason why the bullying was really bad because people wouldn't listen. It was really my mom who, who stood up and was like, no more, we're going to get this taken care of. And so I think selective hearing to me is just people who are just 
sometimes they're stuck in their own trauma or their own ignorance or whatever is going on in their own personal lives that they're not open to hearing or being having empathy or sympathy or taking a moment to just even like want to listen to themselves and so if like someone doesn't even want to listen to themselves and self-reflect they're not going to be able to do that with other people especially if it's someone that there's like me who is minority usually the only black girl in the space and was very um turned out to be disabled <laughs> mm -hmm. um now learning i'm neurodivergent as well so people that aren't open to their own addressing their own issues if you can't do that then you can't help other people you can't be open to other people so that's what it means to me and i hope that hearing our story mm -hmm. and what we do with art in mind with sisters is that people become more open mm -hmm. more understanding even something is confusing or maybe it's just totally new to them like disability accessibility or mm -hmm. talking about like intergenerational trauma talking about race talking about bullying things like that it helps them open up more and be like oh okay i have a better understanding of this and then maybe it could be a start of like mm -hmm. helping them understand themselves helping them understand other people that are different i'll pass it to you well i guess the word selective you know it's like you were just like selective hearing is like only choosing to hear the things that are easy to hear or maybe easy to see or easy to access maybe um when you do art like when i did the human figure my teacher would always tell me look at the negative spaces that's where all the information is mm -hmm. you know what is your negative space saying when you do this drawing you know mm -hmm. And that's where everything is. It's in the stuff that you can't see, you know? So yeah, to me, it's just like kind of like doing things on the surface, I guess. And not really going in to see what's really deep underneath. So can you share with all the listeners how they can reach out to you, be a part of all the things that you have going on with Art and Mind and um, your website, social media, all that. And I also want everyone to know that they're sharing this information, but it will be in the show details and it will also be located on the resource page at selectivehearingshow.com. All of our socials is um, Sista Creatives Rising. So we're on Instagram, LinkedIn, um, website, sistacreativesrising.com. You can see everything about art and, art and mind on there. If you want to see the documentaries, which is on our site as well, but um, you can also go to our YouTube channel, which is Art and Mind Series. Um, and the documentaries, um, the artist one is called Art in Mind, I Know Who I Am, Journeys of Women of Color and Femme Expressing Creatives. And then the one about my mom, it's called A 50% Chance of Paralysis, Get Ahead of Life Before Life Gets Ahead of You. And so they're about a half hour each. Yeah. Um, and we have other features like showcasing our team and um, our disability speaker, Jaquise Armstrong, who did a poem about her experience with having auditory auditory hallucinations, I believe, um, schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And it was really beautiful. And I worked with her to create like a little short two minute film. It was like a visual uh, visualizer with her poetry and jazz music. And so that was really fun. So you can see all that on there. Um, and then in the end of January, we're going to have our um, grant fund open called the Sisters Uprising Fund. And people can apply, anyone who is um, a woman of color or a femme expressing creative of color. We're looking for people to submit their art and tell their story. And again, the grants are 200 each. So anyone who's just struggling, needs some extra funds, 
has like a build I need help with, you could, or open to submit to that. Um, and yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to say another thing too. Why did you choose selective hearing for your show title? You know, I think for you, selective hearing comes from a different place than what we said. I realized that um, for me, I look at it from that angle. But for, me, for you, I want to know why such an interesting title. Yeah, it stands out. Yeah. You guys are the first people to ever ask me that. <laughs> yeah. It actually comes from a place of trauma. So mm -hmm. it was me taking control of that trauma rebranding it, repurposing it and giving it power and a positive voice. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, I couldn't speak to my mother mm -hmm. and um, I would go to her and I would tell her things or I would attempt to tell her things. I would be punished for it. She would always say negative things to me or she would hit me or she would do, you know, like we had a very, very violent and mm -hmm. a negative environment as far as like it was physical and it was verbal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I would, I would always point things out. Like, why do you treat me different? Why don't you not love me? Why do you treat my sisters better? Like I would say all these different things and she would tell me I have selective hearing. Oh. See, I knew so, that that came from, I knew that. It, it, it was, was, it was birthed from a place of pain. And yeah. I said, I'm going to take this because I know that we all hear we mm -hmm. have to hear what we want to hear. Mm -hmm. She never wanted to hear me. I was always a mirror. Yeah. So uh -huh. I took it and I made it something positive. Yeah. I made it something powerful. I reclaimed it. And mm -hmm. now it's a platform where I share conversations like this and I share hope and resources and things that can help people who are experiencing whatever continue their journey. So that is what selective hearing is for me. Yeah. Yeah, see, I, I knew that. that. I knew that. Because how I was feeling, I was taken up, how I described it was how I felt about it. But I was like, but she has a positive spin on this. So exactly. I need to hear what that is, for, yes. where that's coming from. Yes, I felt the same. Yeah, yeah. So yes. thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me because no one ever, everyone always says, this is such a cool name. <laughs> it's such an amazing name. It's so creative. But no one has ever stopped and said, but where did it come from? Mm-hmm. That's where it came from. Yep. I like oh, it. I'm glad you were scared. Yes. Because yes. I knew I was like, hmm. I had a little whisper, ask her, ask her what that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah. Um that's what it's I, I'm actually very open. If you guys ever listen to any of my solo episodes, which I'm I'm doing more of this season. I'm mm -hmm. like peeling back those layers for the listeners because yeah. I know that I have a whole new audience outside of who used to listen to me when I was just on my couch. And I'm very <laughs> much in a different space than when I was on my couch. So yes, giving the audience and the listeners this, this part of the journey so you can see the growth. But I am very open about like my life and the things that I endured, not just at home, but how I even took that out into the world with me became mm -hmm. extremely negative and extremely yeah. myself. Yeah. The karma <laughs> falls to where you, wherever you go. Full circle. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm not going to be like you. And I went out in the world and I was just like her. I was negative mm -hmm. to the tongue yes. and I was very, I'm tiny. But when I tell you, like, I would put my hands on anybody who asked for it. So. <laughs> yes. 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 I know. That's the, story. That's the thing. You, I determined that I was never going to be like my dad. I was never... And then when she was born, I spanked her. 
Mm-hmm. Huh? And I had to stop myself. I was like, wait a minute, what am I doing? Right? I was becoming my father. Mm-hmm. So that's the awareness. You wake up, you mm-hmm. you suddenly you face yourself and you see you're the parent that you never wanted to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A person you never wanted to be. And we had the conversation about it. I think I was nine. Yeah. We were like, this is not good. And yeah. so that was really yeah. It's nice to have like that open conversation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We, it helps I, us have, get closer. I didn't get a chance to listen to the solo ones, but I was... well, I listened to one or two. Okay. Yeah. They, uh, yeah, I just started going. Uh, I have a couple in season one, but now season two is every other episode. One is me. The following week is with a guest. So everyone can get more of, because I share, you know, tidbits during um conversations with guests but in those those solo episodes you whatever i'm talking about if it's like i did one about uh reactions and responses mm-hmm. and i talked about the difference between reactions and responses but then i told a story about me being like this extremely reactive person and the thing that taught me not to hit people mm-hmm. was going to jail oh, or hitting shit. someone mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. and realizing like hey your freedom is about to be taken away. But it was like, that stopped me from hitting people, but it didn't stop me from yelling at people, cussing people, you know, like, (laughs) that was a whole nother journey. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. that's what like, that's what cancer was for me, my my prison. I have to listen to that episode. It was my prison. It was like, I couldn't, it was like, there. I was in a cell, you know, and that, that was when jail forced you to look at yourself, that aspect of yourself. Right, you couldn't go anywhere. No, that's that's what the universe does. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. If you don't want to stop, it will stop you. And it did dead in my tracks. <laughs> <laughs> dead in my tracks, like, and it was expensive getting out of that. And once I I told myself if I get out of this and I don't go to jail, I didn't I didn't have any money after lawyers. I didn't have any money after everything. But I told myself if I get out of this, I will never hit anyone unless like it's a situation where I'm being attacked and I have to get myself out of it and get away. Mm-hmm, but I will never let my anger drive mm-hmm. me to the point where I feel like the only way to get a resolution is to attack someone. Mm. Yeah. So, wow. Yes. Oh, oh my gosh. Thank you guys for being here today. <laughs> All right. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. I enjoyed this so much. And everyone, um, break, make sure you check out the resource page and the show details so you can connect with Amaranthia and Claire. And until next week, this is Selective Hearing.